Welcome back to Ghostbusters Minute. Ghostbusters Minute is the fan podcast that breaks down the hit 1984 classic film, Ghostbusters Minute by Minute. I am Kyle. I'm ready. And we are here today covering minute number two of the film Ghostbusters. So let's start up here at minute number two. At minute number two, we have been following Alice the Librarian. Cards are flying everywhere. Library cards are flying everywhere behind her. More cards than before, we are still in the basement of the Los Angeles Library. Alice runs away from the cards, fearing a terminal paper cut. At minute 2, 25 seconds, Alice runs into the librarian ghost off-screen and is blown away by its unseen visage. We hear the Ghostbusters theme song and see the iconic Ghostbusters symbol appear on screen. The symbol pulls back to reveal the title of the film, Ghostbusters, as two words. Now, as we're going to talk about in other episodes, the original title for the movie was Ghost Smashers. At 2 minutes 30 seconds, we are now on New York's Columbia University, which is serendipitously the same name of the studio that produced Ghostbusters. We see the plaque for Weaver Hall, where the Parapsychology Studies unit is located. This is not the name of the real hall on Columbia University. This is actually Havenmeyer Hall, which is primarily dedicated to science and math. Excuse me, Havenmeyer Hall. Havenmeyer Hall. We see the door of the office of the Paranormal Studies Unit with the words Vankman Burn in Hell written presumably in lipstick that is melting. Professor names written on the door are Dr. Egon Spangler, Dr. Ray Stance, and Dr. Peter Vankman. There's a hanger on the door that says, Maid, please make up this room as soon as possible. We then smash cut to an upside-down pentacle. The character, known only as Male Student, is shown, played by actor Stephen Tash, who is also in Christine and Beach Balls. He incorrectly guesses that the pentacle is a square. And that is where we leave, minute number two. So some thoughts on this. We've actually, so up to this point, we, it starts off with a little bit of action in minute number two. We've been setting up kind of the eeriness up until this point, where Alice previously was in the library. And we, minute number one, she was kind of followed around by the ghost. So we actually saw a few supernatural elements there in minute number one. Minute number two is where we kind of start to kick into the comedic aspect of the movie. Yeah, and it, it really just hits you like a ton of bricks. I mean, before this, we have not been watching a comedy. We've been watching something that is, without a doubt, a horror film. And uh, really effectively so. So as soon as you get that logo and the iconic, famous theme song kicks in, uh, you, you are immediately thrust into another movie. And it's it's there's no mistaking that this is now a comedy, and it's coming at you full force. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. I know we covered just for a second on the last episode the card effect of the card, the library cards flying right. up. It was coming. Uh, I guess we had some people behind a fake wall uh, blowing through some tubes to make the cards go everywhere. I have a note here on uh, the special effect of the cards that were flying up. That was created by the special effects supervisor, Chuck Gasper. He was able to construct a special bank of cabinets rigged internally with air hoses to spew cards out on cue. The card catalogs were then transported to the Los Angeles Public Library where the sequence was shot. So again, not the New York Library. Everything that takes place in the basement is actually in Los Angeles. You see that a few times in the movie. Uh, for example, the exterior of the firehouse was in New York. The interior was in Los Angeles. So yeah. Whatever works. Let's talk for a second about the Ghostbusters logo. Instantly identifiable. Right. In fact, I think the no symbol, which is actually what it is, is now... I think of Ghostbusters. Is the Ghostbusters see that. It was designed by Michael Gross, uh, the late Michael Gross, and I mean, he created, you know, I don't know, arguably the most recognizable, internationally recognizable symbol in the world, you know, since it came out. Maybe it's, a few other exceptions, but... Um, 
some of the uh, designs that they really tried to avoid were like some, something that looked a little bit too much like Casper or too much like a police badge or something, and right. they, they hit the nail right in the head. It looks more like an exterminator's badge. Oh, yeah. And so it's funny that you say it's an internationally recognizable symbol because the international version of it is flipped from what we have in America. That's right. Because the no symbol is not something that we see a lot here. Uh, in urban cities in Europe, you see it a lot more like, hey, don't walk down the sidewalk, so there is a no symbol. And the uh, cross section that comes across is actually reversed from what we have here. So we drive on the, the other side of the road here in the United States. We also have our Ghostbusters symbol flipped <laughs> the other way. Uh, so they flipped it around to the, excuse me, the proper way. Uh, in Europe because it was a little bit more recognizable and people would see that and you know, right. recognize it. So. Um, so after we hear the Ghostbusters theme song, let's talk about the Ghostbusters theme song here for a second. Yeah, it's a funny story. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about it uh, in, uh, in other episodes too, but this is our first introduction to it. Uh, it. It was a massive hit at the time. I remember this theme song before I saw the movie Ghostbusters, I knew every word. Right, written by uh, Ray Parker Jr. Ray Parker Jr. Classic song by Ray Parker Jr. It was a massive hit in its day. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's still, all over it, the radio. You hear it every, you know, um, it's not uncommon to hear it at parties that aren't Halloween related, but if you go to a Halloween party, you're getting your Ghostbusters. I mean, it, it was all over the radio. The video was iconic. Tell me a little bit about the video because I know there's a funny story in that about, uh, is it George Went who appeared in the video? Oh, yeah. yeah, well, the video has, uh, uh, of course, now it's just, laughable but it's it's a product of its time yeah um different actors appear and they sing the chorus of the song at ghostbusters and you get people danny devito chevy chase uh a lot of people who were hot at the time and george went from cheers shows up well apparently if i'm not mistaken he was doing this outside of sag regulation mm -hmm. and uh they got in a lot of trouble for it which i think is ridiculous but that's the that's the rules or whatever and, um, yeah, I think, uh, so according to like SAG rules, you would have to be paid like a day rate, right? So that's right. To, to show up and do something like that might be $700 that they don't have the budget. Well, he's just, you know, they're on the lot and some friends of his are doing something saying, Hey, why don't you come over here and yeah. stick here in the video real quick? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the song was also nominated for an Academy Award. Was it really? Yeah. And it, uh, and was recently at the time of this recording played on, um, the Jimmy Kimmel show and they had all the original Ghostbusters uh, come out and dance to it and everything. It was, it, yeah, it just what it, it's, it's got to that you know, like theme from Karate Kid to <laughs> most likely Daniel's Lament. No, I have absolutely no idea, but uh, yeah, you still hear it to this day, and it just people love it. They love it. They're always singing it. if you're out in the club or somebody comes on. Everyone in the place is dancing to it. So after we hear the theme song, we see the iconic symbol. We open up on Columbia University, which I thought was pretty funny because it's actually the name of the studio that's producing right. the movie at the time. We also get some more um, kind of stone statue iconography yes. yeah you know just like we had the lion in the beginning and you're going to see more gargoyles and such through so that the statue has a name what's it that? is uh the statue is called alma mata alma mata really yeah like you know your alma, alma mater, mater school yeah. you went to uh and it is actually a statue of the goddess athena it was created in 1903 by the artist daniel chester french and an owl is hidden in the folds of alma mata's cloak near her left leg so when the the lore of the university is that when a new freshman class goes around on campus and takes the tour, they show them the statue of Alma Mata. And if a student can say, hey, there's an owl hidden there, that's going to be the valedictorian. No kidding. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, that's the, the 
the the lore of the uh, university, the mythology of the university. It's not a real thing that happens. Oh, yeah. You know, like, right, yeah. This is just like, you know, pick them out and say, okay, well, you're going to be the valedictorian. Right, right. But forever that, it's, it's uh, if you huh. can find it, that's what it is. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. But, um, so, it's uh, funny that the, uh, this, another funny story happened. The far left militant group, the Weather Underground, had planned to blow up the statue in the 1970s, but the fa- plan fell apart uh, because they ended up blowing themselves up instead in something called the Greenwich Village Townhouse Explosion. Okay, are we still talking lore here, or is that no, an actual, actual, really that's actual, an actual yeah, thing? Yeah, the Weather Underground is kind of like a far-left militant movement in the 70s, and they job, planned guys. to blow, <laughs> blow this up, and instead in Greenwich Village, they blew themselves up. So I laugh at it. It's a really a tragic thing, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so <laughs> it's funny. Again, like you were saying, we've got uh, the Statue of the Lion. We show yep. behind Alamada's head. So uh, Columbia University was previously known as King's College and was renamed to Columbia University in 1787. As part of the agreement for Ghostbusters to shoot on the grounds of the university, it was not to be identified as Columbia University in the film. Now, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Ghostbusters fans have gone on to call it Weaver University because we smash cut to that Weaver Hall sign later on. Yeah, which is fake. Yeah, which is fake. The actual name of the hall was, let me pull it up again real quick, it was um, Habermeyer Hall. Okay. I've often wondered, too, if there is, was that any sort of, like, connection to the fact that Sigourney Weaver was in the movie, or did they just name it Weaver Hall? I couldn't find any notes on that, but yeah. that would make sense to I've me. Always, since I was a little it kid, sounds like something you would you find in a college mm-hmm. university. It's like, oh, I've got to take, you know, Science 103 and Weaver Hall. Right. You know, you know. Yeah. I, I can't remember the, the names of any of the halls at the <coughs> university I went to. I think the first university I went to, I think there was one called D. Vickers Hall. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why D. Vickers always stuck out in my mind because it was the first place where all my classes. This is at LSU. This is at Southeastern. Southeastern. Yeah, okay, I'm yeah. for my, my freshman year before cool. I went to LSU. So. Uh, but let's uh, get on to so uh, uh, we see later we get to Peter Bankman's office and on the door it says Bankman Bankman burn in hell. Originally it was a much more obscene line that was written on the door. Really, I couldn't find exactly what it was, but there was a reference in the in the screenplay to a sexually explicit line that was written on there. Ivan Wright- Reitman wanted to be more of a Family friendly film, so instead of like Venkman, whatever, yeah. it was changed to Venkman Burn in Hell. So, uh, and it is a nod to the film, the Stephen King film Carrie, where someone has left a graffiti word similar to that on a real estate sign. Yeah, this is interesting that um, we're getting almost sort of like a teaser to Peter to the character of Peter Venkman right. in seeing that, and uh, it's just you know, it's written in lipstick. It says Bankman Burn in Hell, and we're going to quickly find out that he's kind of a playboy. At least he thinks he's a playboy. And um, it's it's just sort of setting up the fact that we've got a, your hero who is anything. He does not have any heroic qualities, at least not this early on in the movie. Um, you're getting a guy who is just avoiding responsibility for the sake of getting some girl in the sack or whatever his goal, personal goal is going to be. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's just so funny that you're... Your hero is anything but a heroic character, traditionally. This, this is how you introduce a character. You know, you hit the audience up front with what this character is all about. The first time that you meet any character in a movie, you need to know what exactly it is that this person is doing. Uh, take, for example, Guardians of the Galaxy. When we see Star-Lord for the first time, you know, he comes in looking like a total badass, and then he does a huge like dance number to a soul song, you know, before he's, you know, gets in a gunfight with a couple of guys. You, you, you want to hit him up front. Yeah. The idea of a character that is poorly introduced, uh, in my mind, is Darth Maul. Darth Maul is all menace and no okay. follow through. He Fair shows enough. up. Yeah. He shows up and he just grimaces and menaces. You see him with his arms crossed. And but I'm, yeah. I'm not really given a reason to fear him or to hate him. He's just menacing. exactly cool, cool looking character and everything. But um, imagine the Terminator. 
when the Terminator shows up in Terminator, he is breaking shit. You know, <laughs> the yeah. first thing he does is kill a couple of gutter punks, and he is no nonsense at all. He's stomping on stuff. He's a presence in the movie, but he's physically interacting with everything. The first time we meet Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters, he's being a sleazeball. You know, he's being the game show host as uh, Dana Barrett That's refers right. to him later. Yeah. So he's got this whole trick uh, ready, and this, we don't get into that. We'll get into that in the next minute, but Peter Venkman, right off the bat, it's identifiable who this guy is. Yeah, and Bill Murray's um, interpretation of him is this, he sort of created this sardonic, uh, comedic character that, you know, you could say Robert Downey Jr. has sort of carried on, or guys like that. He's the closest, probably, parallel to oh, that yeah. character from the 80s. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, in any time that someone's going to be playing a character like that later on, or if someone's just going to be acting like this, they're always going to be comparing it to Peter Venkman. So what you're saying is he kind of set the archetype for that 1980s comedic hero with Peter Venkman. Yeah, just that yeah. type of person or whatever. So when you see a character like that, so this so the, the comedic hero in the eighties was a character who was skating by the system. The system was fighting against them, but we were they they didn't care. Right. right. They didn't have a care in the world. They had their sunglasses on, a margarita, and they were sitting by a pool where the dean of the university was yelling uh -huh. out the window. Styles. Yeah, Styles. <laughs> Team Wolf, yeah. Exactly. Styles from Team Wolf. You got uh, Mahoney, I think, from uh, the Police oh, yeah. Academy movies. It's the same thing. In the 90s, you had like a character like Ben Stiller in There's Something About Mary, who the system is completely crushing in. The comedy we have is their folly, what they're going through in the, the trials and tribulations they go through. Whereas in the 80s, it's kind of like that character playing the system for their own game. Right. And, and no greater example than right here and anytime something like this would be done after this movie people would just have to say oh it's like peter venkman or it's like what bill murray was doing and you know venkman's looking so. to exploit the system correct to make yeah, money on it absolutely. To, to, to turn a penny and you know we, we see him here at the beginning he's exploiting the system to try to impress the girl and uh as we'll get into in a minute maybe actually turn away an actual real psychic yeah exactly because <laughs> the, the yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get into what this experiment was actually based on. Um, before that, I just want to say that um, the original casting for Peter Venkman was going to be John Belushi, right? And then as Dan Aykroyd was getting into the development to the development of the script, uh, he got the news that his best friend Belushi had passed away, yeah. And so they were going to have to um, switch and. Lovely. So in 1981, when he started the first draft of Ghost Smashers, the idea was that John Belushi was, was going to be play John Belushi playing uh, Peter, Peter Venkman. Yeah. yeah, and uh, luckily Bill Murray was interested and receptive of the role in the movie and got on board. Uh, it's one of those things like the original casting of Indiana Jones was Tom Selleck. It's right. impossible. People want to write that idea off. I think it's impossible to say that it would have been worse or better. It would have been different. Yeah, and I think it's um, this is the same. This is the exact same case. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, could you imagine the guy from Animal House being in Ghostbusters? It would have know? been a different movie. I can't say if it'd be better or worse. It'd yeah. be totally different. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much happy with what we got. Oh, absolutely. It would have been my movie. If I had those two movies to choose from, this this would have been my, what I would have uh, watched if I, if I had the option. Yeah. yeah. So... I think that about covers everything for minute two. I, I think as the movie goes forward, we're moving into more um, action-heavy scenes. You know, like up until right. this point, there wasn't a spoken word of dialogue. It was all Alice kind of reacting to stuff. And we'll actually get some lines from her in a, a, just coming up very shortly in a future episode. But I think at this point on, uh, it's going to start moving forward a lot faster. Again, the first... 
we may have mentioned this before. I, I've heard other people say this. The first 45 minutes to an hour of Ghostbusters is like a perfect movie in and of itself. It, the pacing of it, the, the tone, the jokes, everything is flawless. It's, you can look at this and say, like, this is how you set up uh, characters in a world in a movie. And I think that uh, we're, we're, we're getting to the very beginning, the very inklings of the beginning of that right here after the title sequence, which we, which we saw. So. Well, that about does it for minute number two. Join us back here again tomorrow for minute number three, where we'll be discussing the further 60 seconds of Ghostbusters. Again, I am Kyle. I'm ready. And we will see you again tomorrow. Remember, death is but a door, time a window. We'll be back. Ghostbusters Minute is a fan-supported podcast. To become a supporter, visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gbminute. You can also find us on social media at facebook.com slash ghostbustersminute, twitter.com slash gbminute, Instagram at ghostbustersminute, and visit our website at ghostbustersminute.com, where you can find merchandise such as t-shirts, stickers, and free balloons for the kids. Balloons subject to not being free nor real. Our theme song is Ectoplasm by Audionautics, which is licensed under the Creative Commons Attributions License.